Welcome to another exciting episode of The Nuclear View, a weekly podcast of the National Institute for Deterrent Studies, where we want to advance peace, promote stability, and remind you to think deterrence. The views of the guests are their own. Well, it's that time again. That's right. It's time for another Nuclear View, the podcast of the National Institutes for Deterrence Studies, where we always encourage you to think deterrence. I'm Adam Lowther, and I have with me this week Jim Petrosky and Curtis McGiffin, also of the National Institutes for Deterrence Studies, where we are always thinking about deterrence. 24 7, 365, we never think about anything but deterrence. Occasionally, maybe. Uh, I think about my kids' soccer games at the same time as thinking about deterrence, but I never don't think about deterrence. Uh, so, and I know Curtis and Jim feel the same way. So, today our topic is a good one. Now, with the war in Ukraine hitting a year, you know, it's been over a year now that we've been participating, supporting the Ukrainians in their effort to push the Russians out. And we have, along with many NATO members, along with Russia, expended the majority of our conventional munitions. And we are now, as according to the Department of Defense, at a point where we are concerned that we may not have sufficient munitions if a war with China, for example, were to kick off. And then on top of that, the war in Ukraine has also taught us that drones can be a very significant contributor to victory. They're, you know, this is really the first drone war that we're seeing. And then we're also seeing for the Russians who have used hypersonic, conventional hypersonics in Ukraine. And then in the very near future, we've, we may be dealing with quantum-enabled weapons, and we're seeing additional low-observable weapons. So we're at an inflection point where we may be in a new arms race because we're low on munitions. We're seeing new technologies being used. It could be a, a very new and different ball game in the years ahead. And so we wanted to talk about that today. And Jim Petrosky is nodding his head ferociously. So let me turn it to you first. What say you on this topic? Are we in a new arms race, a conventional one? Well, thank you, Adam. And uh, before I answer that, I do like deterring things, things like uh, Adam bringing up his, his uh, social information about the TV he watches and the and the uh, people he follows on his Twitter account, but I'll hopefully have deterred that in this lesson or in this uh, in this cast. And I'm going to go back to answering his real question about but Jim, arms race. Oh no, wait a minute. Go do ahead. you know how much how much your wife would would love you more if you spent more time on TikTok learning the latest dances such that you could perform them for her? She she would. First of all, she'd think you were funny because she would enjoy. She already thinks I'm funny, by the way. So, <laughs> so I think you need to spend more time on TikTok. <laughs> but right. Go ahead. Anyways, are we in an arms race? 
So are we in an arms race? So, you know, I, I looked at this and it was an interesting comment that you made in, in preparing for this, uh, for the show. And I gave a little bit of thought and I'm typically the contrarian. So I'm going to say, I'm not sure we're in an arms race, but I do believe that the technology is really moving quickly in the way that we apply it in war. And I do also think that the way the technology gets changed, for example, drones for obtaining intelligence, but also a lethal drone being able to do a surgical kind of attack that only has military interest with very few little collateral damage and quite a bit of intelligence or information that is collected from that in order to digitally and automatically, even through artificial intelligence, be able to determine what's happening. And we've seen that kind of technology advancements in many other things. For example, uh, for those of you that are football fans and watch football, which by the way, I do, I do have a TV, by the way, Adam. Um, But when you watch football, they start talking about data analytics and how we're using data analytics to make a decision. We're getting there. And that's okay because technology helps us not only to fight our wars, but maybe fight them a little more cleanly. Now, the question is, if we can fight wars more cleanly with fewer, less collateral damage, that may or may not be a deterrent to at least conventional wars. And we may be seeing some of that. Why not? Why not start a conventional war or protect yourself in a, you know, a defensive posture? Why not start a war if you know that you will not be causing the collateral damage of the times past and be able to do that surgical strike? So that's one piece of it. But the other thing is that I find interesting, and of course, we've talked so much about nuclears in the conventional arena, is with the conventional and the nuclear, the number of ways in which we are increasing our capability of delivery. So that just like the world economy, Wars can be very quickly ramped up from zero to a world, you know, world component. And we haven't seen that. And I was really surprised. That, that was the piece I started thinking about is how have we avoided that when, you know, in 1910, you couldn't launch a rocket to hit another country far off. But we now have that capability. But we haven't seen that, at least since World War II. And it goes back to this deterrence effect of our nuclear uh, and strategic uh, uh, deterrent uh, systems. And so each component that you see, it's sort of, I, I think of it as a lock and a key. With every lock comes a new key. With every new technology, for example, hypersonics, comes a new technology. We're building sensors to be able to see hypersonics or make decisions faster through AI or be able to sense when a, a rocket or something else is moving via intelligence, or maybe even something as, uh, I don't know, as, a, a, as technically uh, important as a balloon, let's say. And so anyway, <laughs> we can see things on the ground much better because of that technology. And I think that's the important piece when you say there's an arms race. Are we becoming more arms-oriented? I'm not sure. Do we have more destructive capability? I'm not sure. Do we have more capability? I'll agree with that. I'll agree with that right up front. And so those are the way I sort of assess that technology and its usage. So Curtis, we've been, we've, you know, Jim's given sort of a, a different take on it. 
but I, I wonder, and I want you to, to, to take on this question, has the war in Ukraine, specifically the use of significant portions of our you know, national arsenals for us, for the Brits, for the Germans, and for the Russians, you know, they've they've expended much of their arsenal. They're now getting it, you know, they're getting it from the Iranians. They're, there's, you know, there's uh, public statements that they, the Chinese may be funneling munitions and weapons of to uh, the Russians. Are we in an arms race just to be able to have the the munitions to continue fighting? Is that even if it's not a technological, I mean, we think of arms races in terms of nuclear arms races or the space race. But what about just the ability to continue fighting because we have not manufactured the arms that we've needed for modern warfare? Uh, thanks, Adam. And it's good to see you again. And, and Jim, always good to see you. Um, so let me just take a uh, just take a step back here. Isn't it ironic that an organization that thinks and thinks deterrence is actually talking about war. Uh, and uh, the interesting part of this is that when we, when we look at war, the study of war, how to do war better, how to fight more war more efficiently, you're essentially studying about the failure of deterrence. And so, because uh, that's what it is, right? When, when deterrence fails, people go to war. People die, stuff gets blown up, and a lot of stuff gets used. And so here's where we think we're coming into uh, with regard to this particular conflict, because I think it is exposing uh, not just the West, but the East um, in, into uh, the value of, of large uh, supply chains and weapon caches, uh, if I'm saying that right. And, and the way I would say this is, is that, you know, since basically since the Vietnam War, and certainly into the into the 80s and the defense of the Folga Gap and all these sorts of things, maneuver warfare has been king. Being able to move fast and light and fight quickly um, has been the methodology of most of the West and probably some of the East. Um, but really today, what we're seeing here in in Ukraine is 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 the success of attrition warfare, um, being able to outlast your adversary. And, you know, make no mistake, a frozen conflict does benefit Russia more than it will uh, Ukraine and the West. Uh, and so uh, uh, there are those out there who believe that this is part of the strategy, Putin's strategy is to have this long drawn out um, uh, uh, fight, which is ironic because we've been so worried about preventing the fait complete rapid attack by the, by the Russians um, that that was actually defeated by the Ukrainians, and then it has gone back to sort of a, a Clausewitzian siege warfare. But I would argue this, you know, there was an, uh, some lots of articles out there. I pulled one here that I found was most interesting, and it said, among the most sobering realizations, and this is quoting the French, and I'm not pointing out the French, it's just they're the ones that were used in this example, that Russian forces in the eastern Donbas of the Ukraine have fired as many artillery shells in one week as the French military has in 13 years. And that includes all of their deployments in support of a, 
of NATO operations, their own operations in, in Africa and so forth. That's a big difference. When you think about the supply chain uh, and you think, well, this is what we've used over 13 years. We really don't need to have much more. Um, and and you, you build up a, um, uh, you know, a battle rhythm, so to speak, um, of, of, of how you're going to you know, uh, purchase, store, and consume uh, armaments. Uh, but when you get into a battle like this, it simply you simply consume things too fast. And I would argue that today, Western militaries do not have the kind of arsenal caches that they that they have that they need uh, to continue to do this. We now hear stories about um, uh, American uh, warehouses starting to run low um, after we've given uh, so many weapons to the Ukraine. And, uh, and, of course, expended our own weapons uh, over the course of the war on terror uh, and so forth, that we're now finding out that we don't have enough. And now we're thinking about, are we going to have enough for China in case this China-Taiwan thing happens? Uh, and these are real challenges. And I would argue that this is part of Putin's strategy is to simply bleed the West and, of its weapons. And I wonder if... If this, and I hadn't really thought about this till you just said what you did, but is our expenditure of, you know, our drawing down of our weapons caches, does that serve to shape escalation? So, sort of what you said is that as we seem to have too little, that allows our adversaries to escalate. You know, does that, does that allow Vladimir Putin? You know, particularly as, particularly as we write about it and we read about it in the press, does Vladimir Putin say, OK, well, now it's time to escalate? Well, it certainly gives Putin, if he has more than we do, it certainly gives him some measure of escalation dominance. But I, one one way to one way to look at that, though, in a different vein and I always like to be the contrarian, which is always fun. But I look at this this the other way around. If we have a more technical cap capability, if we are provide provide better intelligence, if we can forecast what the adversary is going to do and make a move, we expend less. And so there's an efficiency in what is thought of as a new arms race. And so we have to look at that as being our strength. Now, whether we're using that as our strength, and maybe that is what brings fear into the heart and mind of at least Russia, I'm not sure about China, is that we can, you know, outmaneuver, outfire and outpace from a technological standpoint, because we can make decision making faster, we can see the battlefield better, and we can strike surgically to take out the more important components, rather than all the components at one time. Thoughts, Curtis? Yeah, so I'm going to be the contrarian to the contrarian. That's contrary to the, <laughs> what I thought you'd do. Is that possible? I don't know. That's a double negative, <laughs> is it not? Uh, I, I'm, I, you know, it's really cool to think about a high-tech battlefield and all this kind of stuff. But I just don't see the value in making war cleaner. In making, because then it makes it more fightable. It makes people want to fight more when they think, well, but we won't really die or we won't kill that many people. 
you want to prevent war, war needs to be nasty. This is why nuclear deterrence works so well, because there's nothing scarier than a giant mushroom cloud, right? And, um, and, but, and that's why conventional deterrence doesn't work, because people go, I think I can survive a conventional war. But I don't think I can survive a number of those nuclear mushroom clouds over my country. That's intolerable. Therefore, yet not today. And so that's the essence of deterrence. And when we think about, you know, nuclear weapons are, are about not making conventional wars great again. But high-tech battlefields might be. And we have to keep the, 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 the nastiness of it to because that brings the the human side to war. War is about suffering, and and if you don't want to suffer, then maybe you find a different way to settle your differences. But if it's clean, you know, if we have just a bunch of robots and it's my mechaniques that are fighting your mechaniques and no real humans die, we just have a big mess at the end to clean up. What's the what's the purpose? Yeah, well. If there's no real risk, then then war becomes much easier. Yeah, Curtis, I, I, I would say, though, you know, I, you took a step well beyond there. So I guess you can, <laughs> you know, draw on your inner Terminator, if you wish. But um, and I did see the Terminator, by the way, Adam. So um, that was the last movie you no, saw. Right? I saw the first one anyway, probably in theater anyway. The but the point the point I make is, though, if you are a country led by an author, you know, again, looking at my inner Curtis here now, because Curtis says it's whatever brings about fear in your adversary. If you have an authoritarian government that you can threaten just the one that's driving it, the one person, and I can threaten them from far away to the point where they're afraid to move, then they won't wage war. And I don't have to take out their entire population to make them suffer. Now, I agree with you. Does that make, does that deter war or not? That's a, that's a hard argument. Cause I agree with you that the big fear, you know, I always ask people that, that talk to me about nuclear, biological, chemical. And I always say they're all weapons of mass destruction, but which one scares everyone the most? And we always get back to nuclear and I ask why. And it's the fact that many people suffer very quickly in very large numbers from nuclear weapons. Sorry, Adam, I interrupted you, but I just couldn't let that one go. Well, I guess I wonder, are we as humans compelled by our own psychology to constantly pursue advantage in, in conflict? So this nasty war that Curtis would like to see uh, and I forget who was it that, you know, wasn't it like Robert E. Lee or, or was it, uh, uh, not Stonewall Jackson, but, um, James Longstreet who said, you know, if, and I'm paraphrasing, if, if war were not brutal, we would come to like it too much mm-hmm. is some statement like that, that I think it, maybe it was James Longstreet because of, you know, the, the American, uh, the war between the states was clearly a brutal war. But I, I wonder if our psychology compels us to constantly pursue out of fear, you know, if if as, you know, if as we're told, uh, fear, honor, and interest 
are what drive sort of human action, then I, I wonder if fear constantly drives us to pursue, you know, hypersonic weapons, drones, uh, low observable cruise missiles, nuclear, what you name it, because we think that that will help us to have the confidence to overcome the inherent fear that we have of our real or perceived enemies. And so therefore, is it not inevitable that we will over time constantly be arms racing, you know, whether, you know, we had an, a nuclear arms race and now, you know, now we've got a set of technologies that will enable us to have the next arms race because they just so happen to be coming to fruition now. And so therefore is now the time to have the next arms race. And then at some point, you know, maybe 20, 40, 60 years from now, you know, we'll have rods from God. And so therefore the arms race is going to be in space you know, in 20 or 30 years. And then it'll be an arms race for, you know, cislunar, you know, whatever it may ultimately be, but it's going to, it's just human nature to do this because we are fearful of our real or perceived adversaries. But, but Adam, I, I and again, I, I mentioned the technology side of this, but I want to go back so it's not misunderstood because I, I'm a, you know, come from an army background and I believe in the end it's boots on the ground is going to, you know, people are going to be dying. You can have a, a fight in space and then everyone shoots all the space vehicles. And then what? Well, then it comes back to boots on the ground. No one's going to capitulate. It's sort of a, I can't remember the book that had, had come out one time where people said, instead of having wars, we'll just play a big soccer game and whoever loses, you know, will then have lost the war. And then you have the soccer game and someone loses and they say, I'm not giving up my land. And then they go to fight. Well, it didn't really solve anything. And I, so I agree, but I, I, so I don't want my point to be lost. My point, my, my point though, is that technology provides us. And, and, and I look at it not as an arms race, but I look at it as an arms revolution that what we have is we have an arms revolution in more precision, non-secondary casualty events. And will that deter or not deter? I, I'm mixed on that. I'm not saying one way or the other. I think that's where we're heading. And maybe that's why we're seeing conflicts like in Ukraine, because people think they can fight and not and preserve the population and just fight those military targets. But we're not seeing that happen. Maybe that's not true. I don't know that the Russians ever tried to preserve population. You know, it's they they seem to target populations. I mean, that's they want to inflict the harm that Curtis was talking about so that that, you know, country will will give up. It's really largely the United States that wants to be careful of, you know, hmm. har harming innocents. So the Russian the Russian theory of warfare and I think ultimately the Chinese theory of warfare are very different from our own. And we just have to be careful not to mirror image their, their views of warfare. Cause Russians I'm glad, I'm really glad you said that. I was, uh, I, I hope our, <laughs> our entire audience just goes back and re-listens to what Curtis said before, because I was waiting for that point to be made. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a lot like uh, Dave Chappelle said when he played Rick James, cocaine's a hell of a drug. I'll turn it over to you, Curtis. All right, well, let me be perfectly clear here. I am not in favor of a brutal war in Ukraine, all right? Um, 
what I and I do agree that the that the uh, that the Russians are behaving brutishly. Um, and this is, goes to a whole other argument of, you know, why should we trust them in nuclear arms negotiations and things like that? But I, I, l- let me take this one step differently here in this, hey, that when we're talking about the evolution of weapons and what's, what provide, presents the most fear, uh, and that is my students will ask me often, uh, you know, uh, when, will, when will we finally eliminate nuclear weapons? And the idealists will tell you that it will happen when we all sort of have this harmonic convergence within the international system and that the world will uh, somehow be free of this yoke of fear where we'll have this international trust and, um, and, uh, and so forth. The problem is there's no, me- there's no mechanism that could ever be invented to ensure that trust would occur. And if you did, you know, what's more powerful army than the U.S. or the Chinese or the Russians? Again, and if you could create a powerful army to keep the Russians, the Americans and the Chinese in check, you probably wouldn't want that. That would become oppressive all into its own. So my answer to the Americans or I'm sorry, to my students uh, on when will uh, nuclear weapons be be uh, eliminated? And that will be is when we discover a weapon that is bigger, scarier and more dangerous. And because that's what the world is. That's the realistic world that it is. And I think, Adam, your point is interesting, um, that fear drives most of these sorts of things. On the honor and interest, you know, where do they play in that? And I, I think, you know, reasonable people will 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 argue that. Um, but in any case, um, I think fear does drive um, a lot of, of these powerful militaries, um, and in some cases, uh, their behavior. But for the U.S., it is actually the opposite. I think it's fear that compels us uh, to to be more um, uh, uh, more moral, more ethical on the battlefield because we're afraid of any legal ramifications that we've placed upon ourselves that would occur to that. And um, in in some cases, uh, we don't uh, prosecute targets uh, because of that fear. Rightly or wrongly, I'm not judging that. I'm just saying that it is a fact that we won't prosecute certain targets uh, because of law of armed conflict and and other things that 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 lay that stuff out there. I'm not sure we see that in our adversaries' behavior, um, and uh, we should expect them to behave brutishly, and we need to be prepared for that. But the other way to handle that is to deter it, and uh, and utilize that that method properly. Yeah, you know, I would say the, the the only the only comment I would have on this, Curtis, is it's not just fear of our you know of, of the legal aspect, but I believe that we as Americans in our culture believe that we hold to a higher ground in our moral aspect as well in warfare, and that also drives some of what we do, and I think we're growing further away from that, Adam. <laughs> I do wonder, you know, so I've written a a couple of articles and had some debates with idealists. And I tend to find that the idealists are often, they tend to be uh, physicists and engineers who want to be political scientists. And so what I often find is that... I take take a a, a (laughs) against that, um, just so you know. (laughs) But they often are, are... good physicists, but they don't have a good sense of human nature. And so 
they have this perception. These these are the idealists. They have this perception that with the right institutions and the right education and the right cultural values, then we can create this, this globally peaceful society. And you can see this in, uh, if you follow what goes on at Davos, when, when the, the global dons meet, that you can see the elements of this idealism. And they, they seem to fundamentally misunderstand what drives humans and the inherent sort of wickedness that is within the human soul. And so therefore, I would submit to you that that fundamental human nature is in part what drives many of the things that both of you are talking about. And I'm not sure, you know, V.I. Lenin, when Lenin was writing in the 19, uh, 1910s, he wrote about what he called Soviet man. And he acknowledged that there was this sort of what we might call a Judeo-Christian view of human nature. And he said that for communism to work, that he would have to fundamentally change human nature. He said communism can't work without human nature changing. And in the end, the Soviets weren't able to fundamentally change human nature. And so to me, as I think about this whole discussion about arms racing and the notion of fear and why people do what they do, I have to attribute it back to this sort of very basic element of, of, you know, humanity, and that is its, its basic nature. I don't know if that really makes much sense, but um, I think it, it, you know, when we talk about fear, honor, and interest in some respects, that's what Thucydides was talking about uh, in this understanding of, of human nature. So let me offer both Curtis and Jim, because we're, we're about out of time, any final thoughts on this notion of a potential or real arms race uh, in the years ahead? So, so let me go first so Jim can have the last word. He, he, I, he's always so gracious to let me have the last word uh, in so many of these views. Um, again, I'll go back to this idea. So there are, you know, right now there's, there's countless, countless notifications that, uh, you know, that, that Ukraine uh, is, is burning through ammunition faster than the U.S. and NATO uh, can produce it. Uh, these are a CNN, art, a CNN article out there. Uh, and, and this is a problem. Uh, and, and, and interesting enough, um, just, uh, just today, there was an article out that the United States has, has uh, we have given $192 billion to the Ukraine year to date, right? You know, 12 months of this conflict in various forms of weapons and monies and refugee help and, you know, all the, all that stuff. It's kind of like the, the total tab. And, uh, that is six times, really six and a half times more than the monies that we spent for our nuclear enterprise and our nuclear deterrent in that same year. So it is still cheaper to deter than it is to wage war. 
And and we, we talk about, well, it's expensive to buy F-35s and, and it's expensive to buy aircraft carriers and all the things that the, the big, sexy warfighting items. The reality is, it's the ammunition that's going to run out first. And we're seeing this. We're learning this. And I think it is something that we must uh, be aware of. And, uh, and this is why uh, it's much better to wage peace than it is to wage war. Over to you, Jim. Close us out. Yeah, thank you, Curtis. Um, yeah, so so I'll just say in the, in the past 20, 25 minutes, we talked about this because I, I did some show prep and in terms of wrapping my hands around this and I never was really you know, comfortable with the final answer because I don't think there is a final answer. And so I laid out this way. We as a human beings, we desire peace. We want to have our lives and, you know, our freedoms or, you know, our, our control, but we also want no one else to take away from that control. And it's that conflict of, we want no one else to involve themselves in our way. And yet we want to do our own thing. And so the two are in conflict and it's that conflict that makes us, you know, have these larger conflicts among peoples, et cetera. And so uh, worrying about an arms race, in my opinion, is uh, not necessarily the real question. We should, if the arms race keeps us at peace, then maybe it's a good thing. And if the arms race brings about a unpeace and brings us out of peace, we have to find a way to solve that. And there are ways to do that in the arms that we have and the things that we have. And so I'm not sure... And again, you can tell I just pulling that off the cuff because when I think about it, uh, I hope the audience can follow that. We're at conflict. And so I want to make sure that, you know, as we look at this, we don't focus on the arms race, but rather what we're doing. Back to Curtis. You got one more comment. Close it out. Nope. I'm going to close this out. Uh, and I uh, want to thank you, Jim, for those great comments here. And uh, and I want to thank the audience for uh, taking a, listening to us. And, uh, and appreciate uh, everyone who's uh, paying some attention to the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. So thank you very much. Uh, for Adam Lowther, uh, for Jim Petrosky and myself, Curtis McGiffin, I want to thank you again and remind you to always think deterrence. <laughs>